Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. What we're really seeing now is an increasing war for talent globally, where countries are trying with new intentional programs that make it very easy for talented people to move there. And I think in the United States, we have yet to see a comparable effort. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for Market Watch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at Market Watch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're going to start with a number, 0.1%. That's how much the U.S. population grew last year, a slower rate than any other year since its founding, according to the United States Census Bureau. Back in July, a report from the Congressional Budget Office found that the U.S.-born population will start falling around 2043, meaning that deaths will start to exceed births. At that point, the report says, population growth will be increasingly driven by one source, immigration. Immigration is one of the most divisive issues in American politics today. But what sometimes gets lost or misunderstood in that passionate debate is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about on this show, the economic impact. This week, we're bringing you the first part of a two-part episode dive into the issue. Today, we're going to be looking at immigration from more educated, higher-income-earning immigrants. That's typically called high-skilled immigration. Recently, A pair of studies have zoomed in on two areas where high-skilled immigrants often contribute, innovation and entrepreneurship. The first, published in May 2020 and revised in November 2021 by the National Bureau of Economic Research, looked at how immigration impacted innovation in a given area. So we have many kind of canonical economic models that say, if you have more people arriving in a place, then it's generally good for that place. That's Tariq Hassan. He's a professor of economics at Boston University and one of the authors of the paper. Generally, we would expect that if you have more immigrants in a given location, that that location would get more innovative, more what we call economically dynamic. And maybe the the most straightforward thing is that the prediction of these models is that the wages of the people who are already in that location should increase as a result of more people arriving at least over the long term. Economic dynamism refers to the idea that when there are more people, more firms get created. More firms can also get destroyed, which Hassan says can result in more competition. One of the things the paper looked at was the idea that immigration is good for economic growth because it can help foster more ideas. One of the things that uh, people in general, not just migrants, but people do, is they invent new things. And whenever a person invents something new, that might be good for that person's career, but it's also good for everyone around them. So there's this famous idea that once you generate new ideas or new ways of doing things, that other people can use these ideas for free. So if I figure out how to build a car, I'm gonna draw a blueprint of a car, and I might start my own car company, 
But once that blueprint exists, other people can use it. Particularly if I take out a patent, you know, that way that we have figured out to build a car then becomes accessible to other people. So as soon as that patent lapses, other people can use that as well. Hassan and his colleagues look to patents as a measure of innovation. If you have about 12,000 new migrants arriving in a given county in a given five-year period, then the number of patents filed per capita in that location increases by 27%. But what does that increase of 27% really get us? According to Hassan, it means more innovation. How innovative a place is is very important for how economically dynamic it is. So I live in Boston. Boston is a place that is famous for it's economic dynamism in the sense that people invent new stuff in Boston all the time. And, you know, if you walk around Boston University or if you cross the river and go to Harvard and MIT, you'll hear lots of students talking about their startups and the new companies that they work at. And there's lots of young companies around. And that's a sign of economic dynamism. Those young companies generate jobs. And because there's so many companies produced there all the time, that's one of the reasons why wages, even if you adjust for how expensive things are, are quite expensive in Boston because it's such an economically dynamic place. Hassan brings up wages, another subject the study looked at. He says, if a lot of people move to a new county, you might expect that wages would go down. So this is like what I teach my students, supply and demand. So if you have more people willing to work in a given place, then of course, wages should initially go down. But the economy is actually more complicated than that, uh, primarily for the reason that the other thing that people do is they generate ideas. So we have these two forces that are battling against each other. More people or influx of people normally, if the number of ideas are fixed, would mean lower wages. But on the other hand, if people are creative and create more ideas, then more people also means more ideas. And ideas have this property that everybody can use it for free. So if you have more people, you're gonna have more and more ideas generated. But that's not the only thing that happens. More natives, more people who are already in that location get hired to be researchers. And they also produce more ideas and more patents. So this creative counterbalance actually leads to, and we see this in the data, that on average, if you have more people arriving in a given county, wages of the people who are already there actually go up. So we see that within a five-year interval, if you look only at people who already lived in that county before the migrants arrived, their average wage increases by about 6%. So it might be tempting to conclude that immigration is like a rising tide that lifts all boats. But Hassan's study also found that a rise in wages didn't apply equally. One very striking finding in the paper that's also very worrying is the effect of immigration on inequality. So we see that across the board, the average wage goes up for people who are already in that location. But that effect is much stronger for people who are highly educated, meaning who have at least a college degree. There is a positive effect for, on average, for people with a high school degree as well. 
but for people who do not have a high school degree, we see on average no effect. So it looks like the people on average who benefit most from the kind of immigration that we've seen in the US over the last 50 years are people who are highly educated. And it's also highly educated immigrants who tend to benefit from relocating to the US. The top third of migrants arriving in terms of the number of years of schooling that they have, have an effect that is approximately eight times larger than the mean migrant arriving. So in other words, highly skilled immigrants have much larger positive effects on local innovation and wages. But innovation isn't the only area where researchers have found immigrants make an impact. Another study, published this March in the American Economic Review, took a look at one of the centerpieces of the discussion around immigration in the United States. Lots of debates about the desirability of immigration revolves around the question of whether immigrants crowd out the natives or the kind of the U.S. born in the labor market. That's Pierre Azoulay. I'm a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And in addition, I'm an immigrant to the U.S. I grew up in Paris, and that might be relevant to the conversation we're going to have today. For Azoulay and his co-authors, the discussion around the impact immigrants have on the labor market, that immigrant workers compete unfairly with Americans, was missing a key point. The thing that this debate has kind of ignored to date is the possibility that immigrants are not just employees of firms, they can also create firms. And so we wanted to find whether or not immigrant entrepreneurs tend to create more firms and also to characterize those firms. Are those mostly small businesses, medium-sized businesses, you know, tech startups, firms that will grow up to be really large, and so on and so forth. In the study, Azulay and his colleagues looked at three sources of data. First, they looked at administrative records for nearly every firm founded in the U.S. between 2005 and 2010. They also looked at the U.S. Census Survey of Business Owners to study a representative sample of all U.S. firms. Finally, they used the Fortune 500 to focus on the largest companies in the United States. So it's like three different cuts of data that let us, in some sense, count and compare the number of immigrant-founded firms versus the number of firms founded by U.S.-born people. Azoulay and his colleagues counted the number of firms created by those born in the U.S. and the number created by immigrants, and then they used the data to determine whether immigrants are disproportionately likely to found businesses. And it's kind of a large effect. So more firms are being created by the U.S.-born because there are more U.S.-born people than immigrant people in the labor market. But if you kind of take the ratio to the underlying populations, immigrants exhibit an 80% higher entrance rate into entrepreneurship. And so that's kind of like the top result that people should kind of understand. According to Azoulay, that result was seen across every size company. He says that's contrary to the common idea that immigrants mostly start small businesses. You know, a restaurant, a laundromat, a landscaping business, right? And you might think that 
this is in some sense, this is the hallmark that those small businesses, those the subsistence form of entrepreneurship is the hallmark of immigrant entrepreneurship. And we, we find that that's not true. For firms of all sizes, the study found that immigrants disproportionately created new businesses and jobs. Azoulay's research also looked at the impact on wages. The paper found that wages didn't change much if the founder was U.S.-born or an immigrant. Wages of employees in immigrant-founded firms were slightly, but not significantly, higher at just 0.7%. But the shift to thinking about immigrants not just as employees, but also as employers, is an important perspective here as well, Azoulay says. Then it becomes, in our mind, increasingly hard to make a strong case against immigration on the basis of effect on the labor market. Because it seems kind of not ambiguous that they have this big effect on job creation through the entrepreneurship channel. Coming up, if you want to increase high-skilled immigration in the U.S., how might you do it? We take a look at a high-skilled visa program and the challenges facing immigration today. That's after the break. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, including events like the CEO Council Summit in London, where Scott Galloway, marketing professor at the NYU Stern School of Business, talks about the issues facing younger generations. For the first time in our 275-year history, a 30-year-old man or woman isn't doing as well as his or her parents economically. But I think that's essentially the social compact breaking. You can hear more from CEO Council, plus other exclusive content, on WSJ Special Access. Only for WSJ subscribers. Welcome back to the Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, we heard about two recent studies that explore the impact immigrants have on entrepreneurship in the United States. High-skilled immigration has long been seen as a key component of American progress, from Albert Einstein to Google founder Sergey Brin. If you look historically, immigration to the United States is what ends up revitalizing and renewing the U.S. over time. It is something that is a superpower relative to our peer nations. We seem uniquely capable of attracting the best and brightest from around the world. That's Alex Stab. He's the co-founder of the Institute for Progress, a new research and advocacy think tank that focuses on scientific, technological, and industrial progress. The group is funded from individuals and foundations, including Open Philanthropy, the Emergent Ventures Program from George Mason University's Mercatus Center, Stripe co-founders Patrick and John Collison, Schmidt Futures, the Future Fund, and Sam Bankman-Fried, who resigned as CEO of the embattled crypto exchange FTX earlier this month. 
Stapp says that data bears out that America has long been positively impacted by high-skilled immigration. Between 2000 and 2010, America received more migrating inventors than every other country combined. And then even though foreign-born immigrants only make up 14% of our population, immigrants are responsible for 30% of U.S. patents and 38% of U.S. Nobel Prizes in science. And so what I really think we see here is that even though immigrants are only a small fraction of our population, they end up having outsized returns over time and kind of keep America the dynamic open economy that makes it a world leader. But that may be beginning to change. A recent survey from the Boston Consulting Group found that in 2020, for the first time, Canada, and not the U.S., took the top spot for most desirable location for migrants moving for work. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, the U.S. population, and especially the U.S.-born population, is in decline. A shrinking population can have an impact on the economy, with implications for education and programs like Social Security and Medicare as the existing population ages. A fall in population can also contribute to declining entrepreneurship and innovation. Some say immigration is one solution to that problem. What we're really seeing now is an increasing war for talent globally, where countries like Canada, the UK, Australia, and even China to some extent, are trying with new intentional programs that make it very easy for talented people to move there. They're being proactive about recruiting talent. And I think in the United States, we have yet to see a comparable effort to adjust our immigration systems. So how exactly does high-skilled immigration work? Let's take a closer look at one of the most common visa programs for high-skilled immigrants. It's called H-1B. The H-1B visa allows immigrants to work for sponsored employers in so-called specialty occupations. There's a pretty broad range of what's considered a specialty occupation, but they're highly concentrated in science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM fields. Congress determines the annual cap on H-1B visas, which is currently at just 65,000, with an additional 20,000 for those with advanced degrees. In recent years, the number of applications has surged. For the next fiscal year, 483,000 applications were received. Just 26% were selected to be processed. The fact that few applications are approved, much less processed, isn't the only problem with this type of visa. There are also a number of criticisms of the program itself. For starters, because these visa holders are tied to employment at a specific company, some say the program can put employees at risk of being underpaid. They also may be more vulnerable to exploitation, like retaliation for reporting workplace misconduct. And if an H-1B holder loses their job, they face deportation. So for critics, it's not just a matter of increasing the cap on H-1B visas and fixing the system. It's also about reforming the visa program itself. We'll talk more about that next week. Another important criticism of the H-1B program is that unlike other visa programs, it doesn't always have a requirement that employers recruit U.S. workers before hiring under H-1B. That contributes to the concern we talked about earlier, that immigrants, quote-unquote, take away jobs. Critics have also pointed out that many of the companies that rely on H-1B are outsourcing firms. Those companies move work abroad and, some critics say, exploit the system to hire workers at a lower cost. In 2020, 17 of the top 30 H-1B employers were outsourcing firms. 
There's also been a push lately for bringing jobs back to America. We explored that a few weeks ago in our episode on the semiconductor industry. As a quick refresh, back in August, President Biden signed the Chips and Science Act into law. That included a new 25% tax credit for investments in chip manufacturing in the United States. But on the other hand, there's a question of whether the U.S. has the skilled workforce necessary to take those jobs. Here's Alex Stapp again. So for example, TSMC, the world-leading semiconductor firm in Taiwan that is building a chip fab in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, data on their global workforce shows that 4% of their employees have a STEM PhD, but 45% have a STEM master's degree. And so as you see there, about half of their workforce has an advanced STEM degree. And if we want to be able to build these chip fabs and re-onshore that, that critical supply chain for the entire technology industry, we need to make it easier for companies like TSMC and Intel and others to hire talent and bring them to the U.S. quickly. So the labor shortages that the U.S. currently faces remain a problem, one that will only become more serious as the U.S.-born population continues to shrink over time. While immigration remains a polarizing issue, Alex Stapp, the co-founder of the Institute for Progress, says high-skilled immigration is one area where Americans are actually more aligned across the political spectrum. And that's really what we see in polling. For example, according to a survey by Pew, we see that 78% of voters support high-skilled immigration, including 63% of those who said the country should allow fewer or no immigrants. So even among people who really subscribe to an immigration restrictionist philosophy, 63% say that they support high-skilled immigration. Earlier this year, a bill passed in the House of Representatives called the America Competes Act. It proposed a green card cap exemption for STEM PhD or master degree holders. It was ultimately blocked in the Senate, but it's possible more immigration reform will be on the horizon. The need to increase highly skilled immigration to the United States may be the element of immigration reform that sees the most bipartisan agreement, but it's not the only part of the legal immigration system. Far from it. Next week, we'll dive further into that system and hear about some new ideas in immigration reform. That's next time on The Best New Ideas in Money. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. If you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Alex Stapp, Pierre Azoulay, Tara Kassan, and Brett Ahrens. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoff, and Katie Ferguson. This episode was mixed by Megan Ofterman. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. Mark DeCambry was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.